listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. So this morning, I want to invite you to John 16 is where we're going to pick up this morning. So last week we left off at the kind of second half of chapter 15. I'm going to kind of catch us up in just a moment. But this morning, I want your mind to kind of go to some things that bring you love or, or maybe joy or peace. And I shared a few this morning during the early service. Uh, I have to be the one to open up the brand new jar of peanut butter. There is just so much joy for you that have a peanut allergy. I'm sorry, but there is there's just a lot amount of joy in for me to be the one to open that up that you know, nobody else has touched it. The kids know to leave it alone. It brings me a lot of joy. Mine are always food. It brings me a lot of joy when I can drink all the pickle juice before the kids eat the pickles. There's always a race in our house. Um, I love a fresh new pair of socks. Man, it's just like the simple things can bring you so much joy, love, and peace. And there's great things, watching your kids enjoy life and, and doing things that you enjoy to do. And that's a natural part of... How God has created us. But here's the thing. The joys and the things that bring us peace and love in this life are only to be appetizers. That there is a joy and a peace and a love coming that this world is never meant to satisfy. Man, there to be glimpses and to create a longing for the things to come. But I think oftentimes we take these little appetizers of, that bring us joy, love, and peace and we make them the main course. And so this morning, that is what we're going to kind of see Jesus doing with the disciples. Is He wants them to know, yes, there is joy and love and peace in this world, but it's never meant to satisfy you. In fact, you're going to have to go through some sorrow, and it will make the love, joy, and peace all the greater. So we left off in John 15, verse 7. We didn't have time to cover the second half of the chapter, but he ends that kind of painting a picture for the disciples and what they can expect. And it's not real pleasing. He says, listen, the world, there's a growing tension between me and the world. They are going to hate me, meaning the world system. And he says, I've been shielding you from a lot of that. And so now it's your turn to step up to the plate. And he says, they're going to hate you as well. So then in Matthew or John chapter 16, it is all about the Holy Spirit. In fact, I had a professor when I was taking Trinitarianism a uh, long time ago. He said, you know, that the, the Spirit is often the forgotten part of the Trinity. And so this passage this morning is probably the most extended statement of the Spirit's work in all of the Scriptures. So this morning, you're going to see five purposes that Jesus wants the disciples to know that this is the purpose of the Holy Spirit. Then he's going to leave them with three promises. But then I want us to hone in on this idea, because I think this is what Jesus is trying to say. That as pain grows, the transition from sorrow to joy, love, and peace nears. So in John chapter 16, let's begin in verse 1. He says, now I have said these things, Referring back to chapter 14 and chapter 15, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In John 15, I am the true vine, the importance of abiding that we saw last week. He says, I've told you all of these things. And then he says, why? 
It says to keep you from falling away. First thing to note is he is not talking about losing your salvation to the disciples. In fact, over and over, John is going to record how secure a believer's salvation is. Some of those verses are John 6, 39, where Jesus says, I'm not going to lose any of them that the Father brings to me. John 10, 28 and 29, it's that picture of Jesus holding believers and then the Father holding both. And he says, no one will snatch them away. Next week on the high priestly prayer, Jesus will say, I'm keeping them in your name and I will guard them and not one of them will perish. And so Jesus is fighting for their perseverance in their beliefs because he knows, Jesus knows that their faith is about to be tested beyond anything they could imagine. In fact, he's going to say the world is going to hate you and it's coming after you. And so he gives them some examples. Man, he's not pulling any punches here. In chapter, verse 2, he says, they're going to put you out of the synagogues. He's talking about excommunication. But then it gets worse. He says, indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you, let that sink in, will think that he is offering service to God, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. So people, he says, are going to try and they will succeed in killing you. Acts chapter 7, you have the stoning of Stephen. Acts chapter 12, James dies by the sword. Many others in Acts 9. And then he says, they're going to do this and they're going to think they are doing it for God and that is a righteous act. So just allow, try to imagine what this was like hearing it from the disciples. The man you've left everything to follow. You've seen him do things that only God can do. You've heard the master teacher teach. And then he says, oh, and by the way, I'm leaving. People are going to hate you. They're going to kill you. And as they're doing that, I need you to tell them about me. I mean, that's a hard pill to swallow. But Jesus knows exactly what they're thinking. He knows how they're receiving this. So in 4 through 6, he prepares them. And this is how it reads. But I've said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. You see, because Jesus knows when things are about to break loose on the other side of the sunset, they are going to be tempted to run from all the pain, from all the struggles, from all the sorrow, and to run back to what is most comfortable to them. In fact, that's what you're going to see. You're going to see when this happens, you're going to see Peter and John back on the same shore doing this thing they were doing before Jesus ever showed up. But then Jesus tells them what is in their heart. And you see it at the end of verse 6. He says, I've said these things because your heart is sorrowful. But it's not a sorrow in the way that we imagine. They're not feeling bad for Jesus. Their response is very natural. But it doesn't mean it's right. Because in verse 5, Jesus gives them a mild rebuke. Because the moment they hear Jesus is leaving, their thoughts are consumed with themselves. All they can think about is, how does this affect me? They never once stop to think, well, I wonder what Jesus is thinking. I wonder what he's feeling or what, what is his purpose 
for all this. Now think of what it does. It reminds us how human the disciples were. They were ordinary people. They were not superheroes. They were ordinary people with a nature like ours that is self-centered. So here's what Jesus is trying to do. He's trying to lift their eyes beyond their current circumstances to something bigger. He wants them to believe that what is about to happen is more important than their health, their security, and their comfort. I mean, he's telling them, as Paul said, live for something bigger than yourself. Meaning this, Jesus is telling them that being his witnesses is worth giving up conveniences and comfort like security and safety and stability to invest in something that is eternally profitable. I mean, he wants them to know it is a tragedy to live this life and to find that all the things you've invested your time and your money and your influence and your abilities in will not outlive you. He's calling them to look past themselves to invest in something greater. But he knows they can't and they won't do it on their own. So you read verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. And if, you do, if I do not go away, the Helper, the Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So he says, listen, I'm going. It is a great thing. It's to your advantage. And there is unlimited list of the advantages we have. But this might be my favorite one. When you read through the New Testament, especially when you get to Acts, you see the Holy Spirit moving in people's lives. In fact, before that, before the Holy Spirit, you know where you see the disciples? They're full of doubt. They, they stumble. They fall. They're in dis, uh, despair all the time. They, they falter. They're weak. They're afraid because they're human. It isn't until you get to the coming of the Holy Spirit that you finally see them acting decisively and boldly. Even the man that is writing the book that you were reading this morning. In John chapter 19... Do you know where you see the one writing this book? Jesus is on the cross, and you see John loitering around the cross, but he never says a word. He does nothing to draw attention to himself. He wants to stay in the shadows because he doesn't have the courage to stand up and tell those, hey, the one that you just hung on the cross, that was for you. You see him doing nothing to draw attention to himself. But then in Acts 2, everything changes. So now he's about to lay out the five purposes of the Holy Spirit. He begins in verse 8, and he says, When he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will convict. It's this word that means to bring the light, to convince someone that, that something is true, and then it's a call to repentance. So the first three are going to deal with these areas. He's going to convict about sin, righteousness, and judgment at the end of verse 8. And then he's going to kind of give some examples. Look at verse 9. The first one, he's going to convict of sin. It says, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Meaning to convict sinners of their sin. That is the Holy Spirit's job. But I think oftentimes when we think about sin... We think about kind of the do's and don'ts. And when you, 
Don't do the do's and don't do the don'ts that you get into this thing that those, the bad things that we're not supposed to do are not doing the good things that we're supposed to do. But notice the very first conviction of the Holy Spirit. It's about unbelief. The very first sin that you have to be convicted of, that I need to be convicted of, is the sin of unbelief. The Holy Spirit must convince sinners of their desperate situation that is a result of their unbelief. In fact, you see it in Acts 2. In verse 36 and 37, this is how it reads. It says, all the house of Israel, therefore know for certain about what he's about to say, that God made him who is Lord and Christ, and here it is, this Jesus whom you crucified. Because of their unbelief, they put the very Son of God on the cross. That's the very first conviction that the Holy Spirit needs to bring. And notice that you see it. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So the very first thing the Holy Spirit must do is convict of unbelief. But there's another conviction of righteousness. It says in verse 10, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And I mean, it took me a while to wrap my mind around that. Concerning righteousness, because I'm going to be with the Father and you'll no longer see me. I thought, I don't understand what John is saying here. You see, we often view righteousness like degrees on a thermometer. You know, you take the hardened criminal but, you know, he's kind of got the sweet spot for his mama. You know, he's got the mama tattoo and those sort of things. And, and he's going to do all these bad things. He's going to break into cars, steal radios. And, but, you know, he's always going to be sweet to his mama. So, you know, they're like in that 10% righteousness category. Well, then you have people that are a little bit better. You know, they have a steady job. They love their wife. But they got in trouble when they were teenagers and got caught. They said, praise the Lord, you know. But, you know, they don't go to church. They don't do all the things. You know, we might put them in like that 50%. On a good day, man, they're pretty good. On a bad day, they're really bad. But then there's even better people. I mean, you know, they're the people that dedicated to their job, faithful to the wife, support their children. They go to church. They tithe. They serve. They row, as Paul said. And we go, wow. You know, they're like in that 90%. They're the kind of ones you want your children to marry. But then Jesus, what he's doing in that phrase, I go to be with the Father, he's teaching a new standard of righteousness. In fact, Jesus is going to make crystal clear that the inner righteousness that is required and necessary to enter the kingdom of God. It's teaching, it is meant to bring people to the end of themselves. So what he's saying is, I'm going to be with the Father, that I'm the standard. He is the one, not only do sinners need Jesus to die in their place, we need him to live the life that we could never have lived. So when he is raised and seated at the right hand, he is the standard. And the Holy Spirit is to convict us that there is never enough goodness in us. That when Jesus is accepted by the Father after his death, he proves that he is the level of righteousness that is required. And the resurrection is evidence of the type of person that God accepts. So then he shows the third conviction. The conviction of judgment. In verse 11 he says, Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. 
So the Holy Spirit is to convict, convince, to bring to light that there is a coming judgment. And the proof is Satan. And he's already been judged. And what he's telling us is that sinners that do not turn to Christ will suffer the same judgment. So the Holy Spirit convicts of the coming judgment, the judgment of Satan and man's if we do not repent. Well, then he moves to the fourth purpose, and it's actually finally a positive. In verses 12 and 13, he says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whoever hears Him will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. Meaning, if you understand anything of spiritual truth, it is only because of the Spirit's working in your life. We could never understand this world and to make sense of it. In fact, if we believe in Christ, it's because the Holy Spirit revealed that truth, convicted you of it, and called you to repent. In fact, when the disciples tell a world that hates them and their need for Jesus, if anyone believes, it's not because they're great in apologetics. It's because the Holy Spirit reveals that truth to people. And then the fifth purpose, to glorify the Son Verse 14, he says, He, the Spirit, will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All of the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Meaning the Holy Spirit, one of the advantages is the Holy Spirit has come to constantly make Christ known to more and more people. I mean, just hearing the history of Bethel for 37 years ago, that God has been using this church to make this truth happen through the leading of the Holy Spirit. Meaning that if anyone ever sees Christ as more glorious and more precious than the things of this world, that is evidence of the Holy Spirit. So then Jesus wants them not only to know the purposes, but he's got three promises. In verse 16 to 18, you get the first, the setup of it. He says, for a little while, you will no longer, you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, you will see me. So some of the disciples said to one another, what is he saying? What does this mean? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, and you will see me because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does this mean? A little while, for they did not know what he was talking about. We see, we know the end of the story. And he's talking about when Jesus appears after his resurrection to them. Because he wants them to know he's going to find them in the pit of despair. But he wants them to know as your pain grows, the transition from sorrow to joy, love, and peace nears. And that is exactly what the disciples will experience. So he shares the first promise. I call it the promise of joy. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again, a little while you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and you will lament, but the world will rejoice. You're going to be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. 
when a woman gives birth. She has sorrow because her hour has come. But she has delivered the baby. She no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now. But I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask me of nothing. Truly I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you've asked nothing of my name. For you will receive that your joy may be full. So what he's saying is that Jesus, his death is going to be bitter agony to these disciples. But the Spirit's going to come and lead them out of the misery to a newfound joy, a joy that they can never see or imagine. Because he's speaking of a joy that isn't based on this life. He's speaking of a joy that's based on the sacrifice and the atonement for their sins. And he uses the illustration of a woman giving birth. You know, I think what he's saying is that it doesn't mean a woman is not going to remember those moments of childbirth. But I believe what he's saying, that there is a joy that comes after the pain, and that joy thrusts all that pain to the background. He's saying that there is a joy on the other side of the cross at the empty tomb. They just can't see it yet. That when the agony and the misery comes, he wants them to know that there is something greater about to happen. And it's a joy that nothing can take away because it's grounded in Him. I'd say it's an unstoppable joy. But then there's a second promise, the promise of love. In verse 25, He says, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you're going to ask in my name, And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. The Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believe that I came from God. I came from God and have come into the world and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. He's saying the disciples, he says, you're about to enter in to a level of intimacy with God the Father that you have never known. You see, they're still under the law. Their access to God the Father was through the earthly high priest. They brought their sacrifices. They brought their prayers. They brought their requests to a man that had to stand in for them before God. He would go behind the veil of the Holy of Holies. But no longer will they have to do that. When he's hanging on that cross and he gives up his light, we know that veil will be ripped in two. So Jesus is talking about a new age that is almost here where believers will have no need for an earthly high priest. The veil that covers the holy holies will be torn in two and they will soon have access to God the Father. So he's saying this, the new disciples will soon experience a new, a more personal, a more intimate love with God. So an unstoppable joy, a personal love, and then the last one. The promise of peace. His disciples said, Ah, now, finally, you're speaking. And you're not using figurative language. Now we know that you know all things. And do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. 
Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I will not be alone, for the Father is with me. And I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So Jesus makes some startling announcements. He says, you know what, for following me, here's your reward. You're going to be scattered. You're going to return home. You're even going to desert me. But all of it happens, including the one writing this book. But Jesus, what did he promise? He says, I will not lose one of them. So after his death, Jesus is going to come. He's going to visit them before he ascends to heaven. And he wants them to know that he will always be there to restore them. And I think when they experienced that unbearable unrest and the shame they must have been going through, feeling like failures, that the Holy Spirit is there to guide them to a peace that is waiting on them. I think he's saying a peace that is only available through faith and trust in Jesus Christ, not a peace they will ever find in this world. Will there be appetizers of it? Absolutely. But you were never meant to be satisfied by the appetizers. So he says an unstoppable joy, a personal love, and of a never-ending peace that is only available through him. You know, I truly believe if you were to go back and ask anyone that has ever suffered for following Jesus Christ, pick the century, would not matter. But if anyone that suffered for Jesus Christ, I promise you, I believe that every one of them would say it was worth it. I think they would say, as my pain grew and my suffering increased, I could feel a joy, a love, and a peace nearing that I could only have found through all the pain. And I think they would say, yes, I would do it all again. And so I think here's what this means for us today. Following Jesus, we would never say is an easy task. I mean, Jesus said, you know what, you're going to follow me, you're going to be kicked out of the synagogue, you're going to be persecuted, some of you are even going to die. And it's an impossible task without the work of the Spirit. But here's what I know. The Holy Spirit wasn't sent to assure us of comfortable, easy lives. The Spirit doesn't come and live inside believers so that we can rest comfortably doing nothing for the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit comes to empower us for lives that we cannot accomplish apart from supernatural help. It's like Paul said, stand, stand out, step out and do something you don't feel that you can do. So the Holy Spirit comes to convict, to bring us joy, love, and peace that this world could never offer. So here's the question I leave you with. Where is your joy, love, and peace found? If it's a joy, love, or peace that is in something other than Jesus Christ, I need you to know how easily that can be taken away. And Satan longs to steal that from us. And it's usually not that hard. Placing your joy, love, and peace in things like relationships and work and events and security and comfort and things and help will only bring heartache and misery. Because how easily... They can be lost. 
It's only in Christ that there is a joy, love, and a peace that is unstoppable, personal, and never-ending. So believer, please know that since Satan cannot take your faith, he will come with every weapon he has for your love, joy, and your peace. But fight back with the truth that as the pain grows, the transition from sorrow to joy, love, and peace nears. So church, please believe this this morning. Here on earth, there are going to be many trials. There'll be many ways of suffering, many sorrows for following Jesus. But take heart because you know the overcome. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.